that's that's the difficulty of an actual wave of leftism, namely the millennial left, is that unfortunately they had just enough to be nostalgic about. Welcome again to the Catrone Zone. Chris Catrone is here, uh, as he is every other Friday. Um, this week, Chris, we're going to be talking about your essay, uh, which was published in 2018, called The Future of Socialism, What Kind of Illness is Capitalism? And I'm excited to talk to you about it. There are lots of things in it that I think are worthy of taking a close look at. Um, but to begin with, what kind of illness is capitalism, Chris? It is an illness the way pregnancy is an illness, to quote Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, it's not something to be eliminated or removed, right? But something to be worked through to bring forth new life, a new form of life um, beyond it, right? Um, but it is, like I said, a kind of, uh, the, you know, it's an old metaphor. The old Marxists used to talk about this, that capitalism is pregnant with socialism. And I think that they have been misunderstood with that. Like, I think people have looked for the, um, I don't know, the embryo of socialism within capitalism. You know, they've seen like the working class in its like solidarity and collectivism as already socialist in some way. And of course, that's not what was meant. That's not the case, um, according to Marxism, according to Marx and Engels, and according to people like Lenin. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a kind of a tricky metaphor. But again, the idea is that, you know, capitalism isn't just something bad that we need to get rid of. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, what Nietzsche was really trying to do with that metaphor, he's, you know, self-overcoming, self-aufhebung, right? So socialism from a Marxist perspective would be the self-overcoming of capitalism. So it would be the self-aufhebung of capitalism. It would be capitalism's realization and completion and fulfillment, as well as its negation and abolition and transcendence. Right, that dialectical concept. Aufhebung, sublation. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So, so why would be the sublation of capitalism, not its simple, not its elimination? And I think it's a basic thing that many people on the left are very ignorant of right well it's a difficult thing sublation itself is a difficult difficult. concept it is um and so what is it about this metaphor that leads people to a prefigurative politics and how can that be avoided when you think about bringing socialism out of capitalism i mean you know you look for the good guys and the bad guys in capitalism and the good guys Mm -hmm. represent socialism and the bad guys represent capitalism. Mm -hmm. No. Right. So for just teaching Lukács, the standpoint of the proletariat, talk about difficult. Um, And uh, you know, it's not like the proletariat is outside of reification or unreified, right? Mm -hmm. The proletariat is reification. And reification points beyond itself. In other words, the the downside of a concept like reification is that it sounds very bad and negative and you want to get rid of it. You want to overcome reification. It doesn't seem like a dialectical category or a critical category. I used to get into arguments with Moish Postone, who um, I feature in this article, 
mm-hmm. about this. He's like, well, no, reification is an undialectical concept. And I would just say, well, of course, if you read it undialectically, <laughs> then it's an undialectical concept like anything else, right? Like commodity mm-hmm. fetishism or false consciousness or bourgeois ideology. All these are dialectical concepts. They're not just bad things in the original How- Marxist conception. Okay, so taking commodity fetishism as our model, uh, the reification of commodity fetishism, if I understand it correctly, is the taking of uh, the production of commodities and their the and the social and material uh, results of that productive process to be natural. That's one aspect of it. But the, mm-hmm. the, but the the reason it, it's a, a particularly interesting form of reification is because. It isn't simply a matter of believing something to be transhistorical, but it is rather the matter of like actually setting up conditions in society materially for the continuation of that form and perpetuation of that form of of production um, and creating conditions where other forms of social reproduction are slowly squeezed out, uh, unable to be perpetuated, and which, and also conditions wherein uh, an alternative future form it seems impossible. It becomes seemingly well, less and less possible. That's what it means to be like reified for a reified uh-huh. or confetishized version of the of the commodity. But the, but the positive side of that is it actually does create material conditions for society to continue and to, and for people to live and for innovations to occur and for, for there to be a a kind of March, a progressive March through history through this form. So here's the tricky part, right? Mm -hmm. So again, um, the illness metaphor, why I chose that, Um, you know, illness and health and the idea of a form of life, right? So what if our form of life, is our illness, right? And uh, where, you know, and it's a self-imposed illness, like it's not from outside, right? Again, the kind of Nietzsche metaphor. So it's not just that it squeezes out other forms of, of appropriation. It's that it incorporates any alternative forms of appropriation, including new ones. It certainly incorporates old forms, but it also incorporates, continues to incorporate new forms. And so capitalism is a dynamic. So it's not a state of being. It's not like a static thing. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I was just thinking about this this morning. Capital is the moving contradiction, Marx. Right? Capital is not a thing. Capital is a form of life, we might say. It's a, it's a form of movement, right? Which again is a paradoxical thing. So what, what would it mean to say a reified form of movement or a reified form of life, right? It, it presents um, something that Adorno actually talks about, which is this, you know, dialectics at a standstill. He gets that from Walter Benjamin. Um, it gives us this paradox of movement and stasis. So the more capitalism changes, the more it remains the same. And of course, because it's moving, because it is changing, we're apt to think about that change as maybe itself socialism. Or alternatively, oppose that change, right? Um, and so again, it has a contradictory result. 
So in other words, to think of uh, reification, for example, you know, kind of dialectically, would mean that to overcome capitalism has to be in and through forms of reification, right? It has to, you know, reification has to be overcome on its own basis. Now, with commodity fetishism, it's a little bit easier, it's a little bit simpler, which is to say that, of course, the workers are totally living within commodity fetishism. And in many respects, their struggle for socialism is a demand for more commodity fetishism, right? It's the kind of ultimate form of commodity fetishism, namely the fetishism of labor as a social relation, because that's what we're talking about, right? If capital is the moving contradiction, why does Marx talk about the commodity? Because the commodity is not capital, right? Commodity form, you know, a kind of a use value, exchange value thing is not itself capital. No, capital is the moving contradiction. No. Inside. Foreclose that Tristan law. Sublation Media is coming to New York City. On August 18th and 19th, we'll be hosting events at Columbia University in room 517 in Hamilton Hall. On August 18th, Sorab Amari from Compact Magazine and our own Chris Catrone will be discussing their books, The Death of the Millennial Left and Tyranny Incorporated, from 5 to 7 p.m. Other panelists will include myself as a moderator, Ashley Frawley, and Jacob Siegel, the author of the essay, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century. On the 19th, Chris Catrone will discuss his book, The Death of the Millennial Left, and Room 517 from 3 to 5 p.m., taking questions from the audience. See Sublation Media sublate the current moment in New York City. We can sublate it there. We can sublate it anywhere. Capital can be used in a variety of contexts. You could say, you know, there's investment capital, there's right. commodity capital, there's, uh, you yeah. know, you have, you, you can, you, the, money is a commodity and then money reinvested. You can also serve as capital. Yeah, yeah we, right. there's colloquial capital, which Marx right. does use the term colloquially. But then there's this kind of more critical dialectical concept of capital that you have to kind of work up to with Marx. And, you know, I was just... I tend to say value when uh -huh. I want to talk about that. The value the, the value produced through the process of capitalist... The value form. So yeah. one of the reasons that I thought about talking about this essay with you, Doug, is mm -hmm. because of the interview that you did with Nick Gruber about Robert Kurtz. Um, mm -hmm. I'll just use a term... Not a fan. I'm not a fan of Robert Kurtz, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's one of these sort of post-New Left kind of, uh, I don't know what, cranky, nihilistic type people, you know, who's just like, ah, yeah, it's all over, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and you know, there is there is that character to, like, value, form, critique, or vert critique. Um, now, the interesting thing is, let me just say this. So vert critique, right, value criticism. Uh, vert can mean um, value or wealth. And Marx's whole point is that there's a contradiction between wealth and value. And uh, it's, it's also related to, I was just reading recently, Engels was talking about this. He said about English-speaking people, he said, English-speaking people have the advantage that they have two words for what in German we only have one word for, namely labor and work. Meaning work is the activity, labor is its social value. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so overcoming labor doesn't mean overcoming work. It's not like we're not going to do anything. It's not like we're going to stop transforming nature. It's really about the social value of that. Now, the problem with value is that it sounds like a cultural moral thing. It doesn't sound like a structural thing. And when you get into it in economics, you then lose the other distinction that Marx makes between value and price, right? In other words, um, and by the way, that distinction between value and price goes back to Adam Smith. So bourgeois political economy recognized the difference between value and price. So I had a student last night who's kind of a Heideggerian and a Derridian who was like, isn't Marxism just a negative theology about this like, you know, mysterious force that dominates us, capital? And I was like, yeah, I guess you could see it that way, but let me tell you why it's not that, right? Why it's more concrete and more, you know, historically situated and grounded. Um, and again, it goes back to the fact that the proletariat is itself capital in both a concrete and an abstract sense, right? It's the embodiment of the contradiction of capital. That means that it embodies capital, you know? So again, this idea that there are the there's the workers, there's like human beings, and then there's capital, you know, this abstract abstraction and the structure that dominates us. That won't do, right? Especially when we're talking about the fact that from a Marxist perspective, what the workers are doing on an everyday basis is exactly what's reconstituting capital, including their struggles against capitalism or against the capitalists are, are what actually constitute capital. Right. They, they are what they were, what reproduce this contradiction and keep it moving, actually. I, I want to say something about value and price. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this, even though I don't know exactly where it leads, but um, in, in relation to what you're saying. But my understanding about the, the distinction between value and price is that one way to think about it is that value only obtains as a quantitative uh, value uh, on, at the level of the totality. Mm-hmm. That and at the level of the totality, the total prices in society are the total is the total value produced by the workers. It's there's not a that is that copula that is is like really important, and it's why Hegel is so important. In other words, to say is that kind of a propositional statement. It's a speculative proposition. In other words, it's not like an empirical proposition. Well, my understanding of it is that if you could take up all the prices that had been obtained in a given year and the totality of all of the capitalist market that and and figure out a way to calculate the value that was produced in the totality of society, that the quantitative that the number would actually be the same. And that's what it means to say is it's like an equal sign. It's not no. it's not okay. No. But no, because the, but that's the, but that the, is a calculation that you can do. I mean that's yeah, the total money measurement is not value right and again value why it's value form critique you know these value critique people the value form critique the form right and then you said you know how it's measured how is it measured well it's not measured the point of the matter is is that because it's moving and we're just living through this recently and especially with inflation um you know well what about the fact that money, which is a measure of price, gets devalued. So when you're, you know, you can't take a snapshot and say, that's it, because it's the movement that matters, right? It's the Well, yeah, but I mean, the the money gets, right, the money gets devalued. 
but the but the money is still operating in relationship to the value produced in the commodities. So what's also getting devalued, um, it, you know, to, to, you know that has a, a multiple ways of working itself out. You can pay more for the same commodity, so the money is devalued, but the amount of value that it obtains isn't changed. This is still Perhaps. economics. This is still economics. Right. And I would say it's not economics. Marx is not economics. Das Kapital is not economics. To say it, Marx isn't economics, though, Chris, is to act as though it doesn't up, take up economics. He yeah. does take up economics. There's nothing well, it's the isn't. you could say. So I said the is, and now it's the mm -hmm. isn't. Right. In other mm -hmm. words, when you say is not, that's also a speculative proposition. It's not a simple negation, right? I, right. Feel like I would I'm say Bill it Clinton. is not only economic. It's Bill Clinton. It, would... it matters what is, is. It does, <laughs> though, actually. Like, it uh -huh. actually does. And I know that, you know, our listeners, there was someone in our last video who is some kind of a Hegel scholar or reader, and he was like, when Chris talks about dialectics, I want to pull my hair out. And it's just like, well, you know, in other words, A is not equal to A. No, that's not Hegel. And it's like, actually, it's right there in Hegel. But the question is, what does it mean? So again, I'd, I'd come back to the question of, you know, again, what are we talking about here? So value and movement. So it goes back to the article. Let's bring it back to uh, the mm -hmm. article. Because I was thinking about it in terms of like a value crisis, right? Like, you know, ahead of this conversation, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to discuss this with Doug? So a value crisis is an accumulation crisis. So unfortunately, like where we are now, 2023, we're like, really beyond the senile dementia of post-Marxism. That's a title of an article by the Spartacist League in 2006, meaning we've forgotten a lot. And so it's kind of like, well, wait, the whole point of the discussion is capital. Value is only something with which to talk about surplus value and surplus value accumulation in capital is a problem of overaccumulation. A crisis of accumulation is a crisis of overaccumulation. It's a crisis of the overproduction of value. And that's what I get into in the article. In other words, it's, it's an accumulation crisis. It's a crisis of production. It's a crisis of overproduction. It's a crisis of the overproduction of value. And again, value is not like some kind of artificial thing that if we just like get rid of it, then you just have this kind of happy producing economy without the distortions well, of capitalism. But that's not, no, it's, it's got to be in and through capital and the value form. It's not about getting rid of these things. We have to work through these things. That's the entire point. Well, I want to ask you a clarifying question because this is, this, I have this written down. So in your essay, you wrote ancient civilizations were based on a specific kind of social surplus, the surplus of grain beyond subsistence produced by peasant agriculture allowed for activity other than farming. Um, like, for instance, you could have priestly, a priestly class or you could have a uh, warrior cast, well, you know, knights and, and shining. Yes. Armor. Yeah. Um, so what is the social surplus of capital? You ask, according to Marx, capital is a surplus of labor. It is also ever the source of the possibilities for employment and production, uh, the source of, for social investment. So um, what is in surplus? It was grain. And it was the grain needed to feed different people within a medieval society in the ancient world. In a right? caste system. And the, by the way, yeah. you see this in all civilizations. It doesn't matter whether it's Mesoamerica, the Aztecs and the Incas, China, India, 
the African civilizations. It does not matter. They all have the same structure. But in, in under capitalism, there's a surplus of what? Value. Right. So that's why of value is a real, it's a real thing. It's not like a fake thing. It's not like, okay, funny money, paper money, MMT. It's not. It's a real thing. So what do we experience when we experience a so-called value crisis or an accumulation crisis in capitalism? We experience a crisis of too many workers that can't find jobs and too much money that can't find investment. And that's what we've just gone through. Like our recent experience, in a sense, proves the continued relevance of Marxism. It does. At some level. At another level, it might not, because, of course, the whole point of this is the dictatorship of the proletariat. Let's just keep that in mind, right? Okay, okay. Meaning, like, that is the point, the actual point. The point is not, like, an objective scientific analysis of capitalism. You are, you, we might get a better version of, from Thomas Piketty than we would get from Marx. We might, you know, in terms of, like, reforms and the problems, you know, it might be a more accurate diagnostic of the pathology, but it doesn't tell us how we're going to get beyond it. I don't want to grant Piketty that, okay? that I've read Piketty and I've read Marx, and Piketty is not superior, even on the level of economic value, you know, economics to, to Marx, in my opinion. But anyway, I mean, it's ahead. just different levels of, of analysis, right? In other words, like, if we're talking about an analyzing empirical phenomena, concrete empirical phenomena, there are probably going to be better descriptions than you're going to find in Marx, actually. Because after all, he's... Well, yeah, there's going to be more data in picking. Yeah, more data, there, but also right, he, but, but he's the, relying... the analytic tools, though, are inferior. Mm-hmm. The, the, mo- sure. the, the categories, the... the, the what, Piketty doesn't have, as uh-huh. an example, an understanding... doesn't have any... relate. It doesn't say one word about, like, what is the basis for prices or where... or what or you know he's not working within a uh but neither does economic Mark. theory where labor yeah marx does talk about what the, well but what why in other words why because he starts with the commodity form he because he because he's coming out of adam smith he's not rejecting mm-hmm. the old labor bourgeois value. Right, right right yeah Piketty doesn't include the labor theory of value in any right, of his so analysis let's back up a second so the labor theory of value right okay so it's not a labor theory of price. It's not. It's a labor theory of value. And with Adam Smith... No, but there's a value theory of price. There is a no. value theory of price that follows from the labor theory of value. Yes, there that's, is. There is a value theory of price. That's and what so Marx, that means that these things are related. Value that's and price. what Marx called vulgar political economy. In other no, words, there's not a... Value isn't equal to price mm-hmm. at the level of the individual commodity. Just like there's a there's a... There's a Marxist uh, understanding of rent, you uh-huh. know, that doesn't, you know, th- so there is a, a, a value right. theory of price that doesn't mean like Paul Cockshot would say the prices simply are value. The, the, the value oh, no, no, right, right, right. Okay. Like, uh, I'm, no, but I'm there is a value Ricardo, theory of price. Right. Ricardo tried to develop an economics out of Adam Smith's, what I would say, political economy. Right. So the difference in political economy and economics for Marx is that. Economics involves a vulgarization of political economy. So it goes to the nature of Smith's, the relationship between value and wealth in Smith, and the labor theory of value also being a labor theory of wealth. Right? Again, that's a speculative proposition. The speculative proposition is that the social value 
of goods and services, the social value of labor can be used to increase societal wealth, right? So he's thinking of it as like, what's the best way to look at this as a way of thinking about how we should act in practice? And that's why Smith said, you know, I'm, I'm going to struggle time. against my inner pedant, okay? Because I could be wrong about these things. Uh -huh. but like the labor theory of wealth, um, it doesn't really obtain under capitalism in the same way that the labor theory of value does. If, as an example, speculatively, let's say we have um, these UFOs in bunkers, right? And from which the uh, U.S. is getting technology or something. What are right, right. And and somebody and I get and I get my hands on one, and it has technology in it where <clears throat> it will generate food for me every day. I think there's I, a Star uh, Trek episode, a Star Trek maybe Voyager right. episode, where there's like a guy who goes back in time and he uses technology to start a corporation and right. Right. But the well, but I just stumble upon this machine. I don't have to pay for it it doesn't have us but and the wealth it produces for, for me alone it, it i get to be wealthy in terms of the commodities i i can consume but it doesn't have a social value well the it question is what impact would that have on society well it would probably really grow question. society into if i could if i could start producing everything that society needed through this miracle technology of just replicating everything from some unknown power source that didn't require any human labor then all this wealth would enter into the world, but it would have no way of being mediated by value. In some ways, we're would, there. Right. That is exactly yeah. where we are. Right. So, but so right. So the <laughs> point is that that there is that that wealth can be separated out, personal sensuous wealth not just, from okay, the but we're not from the money form. Distinction. We're talking about a dialectical contradiction. In other words, we're talking about the fact that what should be an identity of identity and non-identity, value and wealth in Smith, mm -hmm. has become rather a contradiction, meaning these are actually antagonistic forces, we might say. Right. The more innovation you have, the faster you can produce commodities, the less a value they contain, the more likely you're going to have a, an economic crisis that you could say is an overaccumulation crisis, which I would say is based on the tendency of the rate of profit to decline, but which may not be in contradiction with each other at all. So yeah, the, the I, 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 anyway, continue and I, I'm so, going to shut up more. Yeah. I mean, the question <laughs> is, the question is again, what's wrong with this society, right? Like capitalism, like what is it? Capitalism, like, uh, you know, we're suffering from capital. We're suffering, suffering from its ism. Well, what is that? And again, it's peculiar because there are different ways of thinking about symptoms. And, you know, uh, one spontaneous affinity between Freudian psychoanalysis and Marxism is that it has a different approach to the idea of symptom than you would have in uh, biomedicine, right? Um, because in biomedicine, the symptom is epiphenomenal. In other words, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the nature of the illness. Whereas for Marx, actually, the symptomatic, the manifest phenomena, the symptoms actually do tell you something about the actual illness. And so we're not trying to find an underlying cause, right? So it's not like there's a um, phenomenal appearance in a noumenal essence, right? 
Like there's a reason why Marx is based on modern philosophy and not ancient philosophy. And, you know, Kant is already beyond that old noumena phenomena distinction. And so is Hegel, of course. And so is Marx. So the symptom is self-diagnosing in some way. In other words, the symptom points beyond itself in a way that when you're suffering from a physical ailment, the manifest symptoms don't necessarily point in the direction in which you're going to be overcome the illness, become healthy, right? You just want to kind of not suffer from the symptom anymore, get rid of the underlying cause of the symptom. Whereas here, it's a symptom, again, more in a Nietzschean sense, which is that it's actually an expression of our form of life, right? So it's not like we're, we have a form of life that's suffering from this external thing, capitalism. No, capitalism is us. It's our form of life, actually, right? And it's self-contradictory, right? So again, that idea that somehow, you know, the workers are just like producing solidaristic, collectivistic people, and then capitalism comes in from outside and oppresses, exploits, distorts that happy situation. Now, okay, but it can look like that. And so you have bourgeois critiques of capitalism. You do. And Marx's point is that, again, the contradiction between bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production, well, the workers' movement for socialism is based on the bourgeois social relations. And that's why it can be Luddite. That's why it can be anti-technology. That's why it can be conservative reactionary. Because the workers are motivated against capitalism out of not only bourgeois sentiments and culture, but more kind of structurally formally, right? From the standpoint of labor, that's the bourgeois social relation. The bourgeois yeah, social you, relation. you get a machine to come in to do a lot of the work for the worker. They're going to be unemployed. It's not yeah. in their immediate interest to innovate technologically. Um, right. And you can, and that, and even like individual capitalists can be uh, kind of romantic. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to innovation that to, I used to work at Comcast and we would sell telephones, landlines yeah. through the cable uh -huh, yeah. and internet and internet packages. Right. And no one wanted the landlines, right. right? No, no one cared about that, but we were incentivized to sell them by packaging them up. We just, it, that they were, the, the, the company refused to let the landline die, even though by all, and, and also they were artificially suppressing the internet service so uh, that you could, so it couldn't handle as much information. Uh -huh. They were, tamping down on it in order to hold on to cable TV and the landline service. So my example, my recent example was um, Elon Musk being interviewed by Tucker Carlson mm -hmm. about AI. And right. Elon Musk was like, well, I'm here to tell you my collaborators on AI, they're like these inhuman monsters. And when I tried to say that AI will have a negative effect on human beings, they said, don't be speciesist. And maybe the purpose of AI is to replace humanity. In other words, that the AI singularity will render the human race obsolete and good riddance. And then, you know, he and Tucker bonded on like humanity, right? And then Tucker had some kind of like Christian, like working class, something or other. 
And Elon Musk just went into pure Asperger syndrome and he's like, well, I'm a human being and so I should care about humans. You know, it's like <laughs> a logical proposition or something. And I'm just like, man, right? So, you know, the, what are we dealing with here? In other words, obviously our emancipation beyond capitalism uh, is indicated by AI, it is, but it's not like AI is socialism. <laughs> Bold 3 Detergent Plus Fabric Software. The School of Materialist Research is a self-sustainable platform where ideas are discussed in ways that would not be possible in conventional academia. The school is defined by its interest in the materialist approach to knowledge. Among its faculty are Julia Kristeva, Amanda Beach, Ben Woodward, Thomas Nail, and Paul Cockshot. The deadline for applications is September 4th, 2023. Check out the link to the School of Materialist Research in the description for this video. It's not, right? It's because it's a it's a constrained yeah, yeah. Supported, what would it mean for the AI to replace humanity? Replace humanity doing what? Well, doing whatever. Homo Deus. You know, like our purpose as a primate species is to give birth to a new god, and that god is AI, you know, the Yuval Harari article. Uh, or, you know, a book, I guess he has a book about this. And, um, you know, it's like the Matrix, for Christ's sake, right? It's like right, the, but replace you. But I think it, the secret there is it would replace humanity in, the, in terms of uh, generating capital or value. That's what the, the fear is, really. The logical, uh, rational right. fear is the, the AI will replace the workers, We'll replace yeah, all that I'm saying is, what do the workers want in socialism? What did they want in socialism historically? They wanted a, a restoration of the bourgeois social relation. They wanted a restoration of the value of labor, the social value of labor. They did. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this idea that it's just capitalist property. Right. And, you know, and then identifying the workers with the industrial forces of production. So there's a lot of, in the history of Marxism, there's a lot of propaganda. There is. And propaganda has a place politically. The problem is, is that those of us who come later, we read the propaganda as if it's theory. And it's not. Right. Um, and we read the propaganda as if it's articulating principles. Right. Sort of transhistorical principles as opposed to historically specific tasks. Right. And so we confuse tactics for principle. We confuse propaganda rhetoric for theory. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, like Marx is a political writer himself. Like, so I'm not just talking about like Kautsky and Lenin and Luxembourg and Trotsky and those kinds of people. I'm talking about like Marx and Engels and, you know, just Marx. Like, okay, we could say Engels is the popularizer. You know, he's the propagandist, but Marx, he's the scientist, he's the theoretician, he's the philosopher. No, even Marx mixes uh, political rhetoric, a, a kind of propagandistic purpose with his critical theory, we might say, or his critique of political economy and his critique of capitalist politics. It's a mixture. And so it's very hard to, na to navigate. But again, part of the point is that we're supposed to be working through the forms of appearance. We're not trying to get to an underlying essence. We're trying to deal with the world as it presents itself as it presents itself as self-contradictory. And again, that gives a different character to how we grasp, you know, not just see, but try in practice to grasp the problem of capitalism. 
you know, it's, um, and there's a lot of, you know, paradoxes. I mean, I, I teach Frankfurt School, I teach Benjamin and Adorno. There's Benjamin pulling the emergency brake on history, as opposed to revolution being the locomotive of history. There's all these things and people are like, oh, see, Benjamin is going against Marxism. And it's like, no, he's trying to recapture something about Marxism, which is to say it is a moving contradiction. It has a static character and a dynamic character. It has a linear character and a cyclical character. It, you know, that's part of what we're talking about when we're getting into the contradiction. And we are capitalism. That's the point. And I, I, I imagine that our viewers will be like, speak for yourself, Catrone. I'm not capitalism. Uh, no. It's precisely when you think you're not capitalism that you are. <laughs> because you're just exploring the frontiers of capitalism at a concrete level. You're par participating in the innovation of capitalism through your anti-capitalism or your reforms that are meant to mitigate capitalism. That's the whole point. And so, again, the issue is, how do we understand this condition? And Marxism has a very hopeful view. You know, um, It has a dialectical conception of the relationship between capitalism and communism or socialism, whatever you want to call it. You know, um, it is, you know, that kind of not anti-capitalism, because I know that that came up also. And someone wrote a comment, you know, lol, laugh out loud, like, oh, what are you talking about, Catron? Of course, Marxism is anti-capitalism. Uh, no, I'm sorry. You know, there's no reason in 2023 where we are now to just not be serious about these concepts and really put the pieces back together and not just allow our sentiment to drive our understanding. When you say, no, it's not anti-capitalism, you don't mean it is full on just uh, an embrace of capitalism no. as a trans-historical reified form of life. No, no, of course not. The point is right. capitalism is constantly overcoming itself and yet we have to make it overcome itself because if it doesn't overcome itself consciously, then it doesn't overcome itself. Right. Right. So well, it's constantly it, uh, the way I th this is a metaphor I go back to again and again. And it maybe it's too too. Maybe it's not a good one. But I think of capitalism as like the history of chess. Hmm. There are rules for chess. But as the people play the game, different strategies, different approaches, different hmm. ways to win are developed so you go you know for the longest time the the best opening was always the, the opening with the king and anybody who was a serious chess player opened with the king and then somebody figured out a way to start opening with the queen mm -hmm. and that became dominant in the in the game, world of chess for a long time mm -hmm. and that that a serious player would open with the queen this is you know i'm not i'm not an expert on the history because of chess, they had but, the follow-up moves also right they had developed uh, a, a, a strategy that was not just, you know, oh, no one had never thought of moving the queen before. Of course they had, right? They, people had been moving the queen and they, they hadn't developed the strategy to make that. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. So that's how I think of the way that capitalism progresses is like, okay, uh, you, you know, someone within, this framework. This is, mm -hmm. within this framework. So it's, Queen's opening, King's opening, Pawn's opening, the, you know, uh, it's neoliberalism, it's Fordism, you know, but it, it's emphasis on uh, the state, emphasis on the market, you know, but it's always within a framework with the basically the same pieces. It's just rearranged. So tricky because 
there aren't really rules, right? That's a, that's what that's the limit of the metaphor. There's a law-like tendency for things to exchange as equivalents in the market. That's what there is based yeah. on value production. Yes. However, even the forms of exchange and the medium of exchange changes, and that's why people get into like, is money a commodity anymore? The way Marx assumed. Yeah, because it's, it's no longer, longer attached to the gold. Right. right. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, really what we're talking about, the so-called law-like tendency is the contradiction. That's really what it is. And that's why it's not just not a positive theory. And that's what makes it so difficult to really comprehend. It's not a positive theory. It's a theory of, again, the moving contradiction. It's a theory of contradiction. And it's, by the way, Marx wasn't, you know, when he's like writing in the 1860s, he's not thinking in the 2020s people would be like cracking their head against his book. He thought we'd be well beyond this. In other words, he thought the contradiction once manifest would be unavoidable, right? And unfortunately, what we've found is ways of channeling the contradiction because that's what really what's happening. In other words, we're not just developing new strategies within the same framework, but the contradiction itself the manifest forms, the concrete forms of the contradiction have changed. And that's why people are always declaring, you know, the end of capitalism, first of all, the absolute limit of capitalism, but also that this is no longer capitalism or Marx's version of capitalism no longer obtains, right? And so that's why, you know, the, the real point, I mean, I don't know, like Lukács, like what is the essence of Marxism? What is orthodox Marxism? Dialectics. Nothing else. Like you can throw out all the other propositions, all the other prop. Why? Because they attach to concrete forms, right? In other words, Marx didn't live to see the form of capitalism that we have now. And so it can be very confusing to try to but apply Marx. Now. I would say that what you can't throw out is the labor theory of value, which is well, sure. Marx's for, you can't say, Oh, I'm going to. We're still in bourgeois society. In other words, bourgeois social relations. Like, if we just boil it down to how did Marx define capitalism? The contradiction of bourgeois social relations and industrial forces of production. That basically, to put it like you you say, bourgeois is freighted because it's like bourgeois society. There's you know, there's a bill of rights. There's democratic participation. You can be in bourgeois society and be in China, and you and and. What it is is that the value that labor produces is what mediates our relationships in society. Although that in and of itself tends to have a egalitarian and liberalizing effect. Tends to, but doesn't it can but that can be overcome. It can't really be overcome. At the end of the day, the workers or somebody, they're gonna be there, there's going to be an end to the Communist Party rule in China. That's not going to be socialism. I have news yeah, for the children. Well, yeah, right, okay, but you're going to have a not, democratic revolution. You're going to have a liberalizing revolution. You isn't are. the history of capitalism just the history of all the ways in which that bo- liberalizing bourgeois character of labor keeps getting overcome because of its contradiction? Like, well, it, 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 keeps, it keeps coming up against its limits. Yes, so. Look, we it's not like in the United States we're living in this like bourgeois liberal democratic country 
Whereas in China, they're living under totalitarian and no. left, like red fascism, communism, something or other. To Is risk that- sounding like a re- Republican, I don't really see much of a difference between the United States and China right now. But anyway, go, go ahead. Right, right. And so, uh, of course, that's hyperbole on their part because they're like, we don't want to become like China, but the yeah, Democrats exactly. are making yeah. us become like China or something right, like that. Right, right. And, you know, the point of the matter is, is that, you know, it's it's just not as straightforward as that. So it it hasn't been like liberal democracy in bourgeois terms for a long time. And yet it still is. And it still has a tendency in that direction. Like when we look at, I don't know, Vladimir Putin's Russia, where did it come from? It came from a kind of very squelched, but still there was like a kind of a liberal democratic revolution that happened that, you know, Gorbachev initiated through perestroika and glasnost and which came to a crisis. And then Boris Yeltsin had to like stand up and they had like a little coup attempt and they had like street fighting and, you know, supposedly they implemented a kind of liberal democracy. And then that liberal democracy became a kind of, you know, oligarchical kleptocracy kind of more authoritarian state. But guess what? So is the United States. The United States started out in a liberal democratic revolution and has ended up being basically a kind of, you know, crony oligarchic, kleptocratic, bureaucratic, authoritarian state. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, (laughs) right. I know. So, you know, I mean, in other words, there are just levels or degrees. It's not like a difference in kind, you know, so the challenge from the standpoint of Marxism is to see not just this or that country as capitalist or not just this or that country as bourgeois, but to see the world as capitalist, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, this is the one world, like Putin's Russia, you know, Biden's United States, Xi's China, are, and uh, I don't know, the Mullah's Iran are all one world. It's one world, right? And the historical contradiction, the moving contradiction, is between the tendency to reinscribe labor as value, bourgeois social relations, and the tendency to outstrip that value by the industrial forces of production. But, you know, didn't Saudi Arabia just give women in the last few years the right to drive cars, right? Well, where does that Yeah, but they're still, uh, you know, having to live up to unrealistic beauty standards. Well, you know what I mean? But the thing is, why would Saudi Arabia have to let women drive cars? Because bourgeois social relations, I have news for you, right? In other words, it's like there's some kind of a practical necessity at work. Um, And, you know, or why the mullahs in Iran only implement like, uh, you know, Muslim laws very selectively. Like, it's not like the Mm -hmm. Taliban, you know? Um, and so, well, have you have you heard about have you heard this guy Vihi talk about? Uh, um, I forget his. I've interviewed him. Uh, I'm gonna. He's been talking about. He's concerned about digital currency. Um, I don't know. So, okay, uh, Fabio Vihi. Oh yeah, I've heard. And of him. Uh, Fabio Vihi. Yeah, 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 and he's he's yeah. um. All right, so I'm going to say that again and cut that part. Have you heard about Fabio Vihi? You, do you remember his theory? Have, of, I'm not. I'm not totally sure on what he's about. He's very concerned about the way in which the state will try to uh, gain control over the liberal market economy uh, by instituting digital currency, which they will 
to you know distribute not based on the old form of you know production through of uh, production of commodities and prices of of wages being set by the basket of commodities necessary for re social reproduction and all of that done in a relatively free way uh, in a market, but rather simply uh, through kind of centralized planning. So you as an individual will receive these many dollars or digital credits based on how well you're conforming to the edicts of the state. Um, and I try. Right. And my, my, and I, I said to him, if they did that, imagine how quickly there would be unrest. And, and on the same basis that there's unrest now, yeah. like imagine being a black person uh, living in a, in a slum and being given just enough credits to go to 7 Eleven to uh, buy but tacos. You know that when they do this, they will also do reparations for slavery. So they'll take care of that problem. It will only be the, the white slobs who who have to really suffer in silence yeah okay <laughs> maybe that's what they'll do in other words if they do do that if gavin newsom is the next president and you know and he's like okay silicon valley let her rip right they'll be sure to give uh black people reparations to make sure that there aren't urban uprisings well even if they i mean look you can pump, you know like you can pump these like, digital currencies into <laughs> these these areas where there aren't any, you know, really good grocery stores and there is no infrastructure to bring. Well, that's the other thing. That's I mean, that's a total other thing. But of course, reparations, Adolf Reed taught me this a long time ago. If you were to give reparations to black people, it would just be another boon for Wall Street. Right. And, and, and there, would, there would just be a management. There would be a black management class to, like, handle the money that everyone's been given and they'd get a cut of the Wall Street boon out of it right right i mean because a million dollars goes into the bank which means it goes into wall street <laughs> right? another way to put it is if you have six hundred thousand dollars in the bank and someone yeah. gives you a million you know that's great that's really a big huge improvement in your life you can do so much for that if you are in debt and on the verge of of you know being evicted and someone gives you a million dollars it's I mean, not that could that's possibly a death sentence at that point. I mean, you know, it, 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 it it's certainly not necessarily going to radically change your life, uh, you know, because the, the conditions that you have to reproduce yourself are not going to just be solved by a lump sum. Uh, no, so anyway, this won't this won't happen, right? So right, it, right. it won't. But they might try some things. It might happen on some margin. No, it's level. a paranoid. It's a paranoid fantasy. This. Digital currency. But, you know, so this is, but this is again the thing, right? So in other words, when we think of bourgeois social relations, it's not the money economy. It's not. In other words, it's something more fundamental and basic than that. Um, you know, the money economy is a way of elaborating bourgeois social relations. It's a concrete form. And, you know, that's why you can have money as a commodity as gold, or you can have paper currency as, as a commodity as well. It's a form of mediation. So again, the issue is mediation. And, you know, we're not going to have unmediated capitalism. What we're going to have is different concrete forms of mediated capitalism. And the whole Marxist point would be to be aware of the contradictions that manifest in those concrete forms of mediation. And to understand that that contradiction is, again, a, a question of historical movement. So, you know, sometimes it manifests more obviously and sometimes it manifests more subtly. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And so, you know, we do have the advantage of living in a money economy and there are markets, you know, there are investment markets, labor markets, markets and goods and services. So we still see concrete manifestations that look very much like what Marx described, right? Um, but, you know, again, it becomes more obscure when you look at, I don't know, economic stagnation in the Soviet Union in the 1970s, right? It's like, it's going to be like, oh, is that a confirmation of Marx? Well, actually it is, but in not in an obvious way. Right. right? It, it well, was okay. a crisis. It was a crisis of overproduction. It was. Yeah. It was a value crisis, but in a much more obscure way because there's no profit. There's no, you know, you can try to retranslate things into those terms, but it's going to be a little ham-fisted. It's not really going to be about that. But what you did have is claims on social wealth and also claims to participate in social wealth on the basis of labor up against industrial forces of production. You did. I'm feeling like in this conversation, I'm thinking that people who are watching this uh, will say to me, Doug, shut up. (laughs) Because what you're doing, all the, when we talk on this level, there's all this prior training, you know, and thinking that I've done that just without me even, um, you rebel. uh, Well, it's not that I'm rebelling. It's that I just, it's like, uh, it's just that I have these ideas that I think I understand. And you're saying things that I feel like are close, but not a line. I want to correct and see if I can see if I can get these things to work together. But, Uh um, what you're talking about is not, you're not trying to, but one of the things about my previous approach to Marxism was to say, uh, was to think that what distinguished a Marxist from a social Democrat was hmm. there the Marxist understanding that the, uh, the form of, of social production, uh, you know, basically the uh, commodity production or capitalism itself, um, was uh, always going to set up contradictions. The Marxist believes that these contradictions can't be overcome through the use of the state. They can't be overcome by, uh, you know, having a better environment at work, like social, like democratic workplace. Like they can't be uh, fixed at the level of of changing the faces in Washington uh, or having the right policies. That there has to be a radical change in the mode of production, meaning that is the workers have to be able to transform the way they create and recreate the world. as a, mm-hmm. And that's the political task of the workers. And if you don't believe that, then you're not a Marxist. But then, so when I, but I thought about that transformation in terms of overcoming value production, breaking away from the, the labor theory of value, ultimately having some other mediating force to be created by a free people working together. Um, and I thought about it in those very specific ways. And when you talk about the capital, you're talking, you're not talking on that more economistic level. You're talking about things both politically and economically. So the tricky the part time. about social democracy and, and even Stalinism, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we can say, okay, these people abandoned Marxism, but they also came from Marxism. In other words, how they abandoned Marxism is very obscure, you know, to themselves, right? So like social Democrats in Europe or, you know, elsewhere, it's not like they ever abandon the goal of socialism. They don't, right? Um, they 
they think that they're pursuing it. In fact, right? They don't. Well, think yeah, but in capitalism, they don't. I don't know about them, but I know that today most of the the Marxists uh, in this moment have abandoned the understanding of socialism that Marx had. So they say socialism is well. That's Fordism. The with our millennial left, why I say the millennial left is dead is that they kind of never became Marxists, meaning they didn't become Marxists the way the '60s generation did. And I, of right. course, would have criticisms of the way the 60s generation became Marxist. But the 60s generation, like, I feel like putting in a more honest effort. And the other character in this um, essay that we're discussing is Peter Fraze. So I have Morse Postone and I have Peter Fraze. And Peter Fraze is an early, like, Jacobin kind of figure. And he's basically what passes for a Jacobin DSA theorist and someone who's trying to be more serious about Marx and Marxism, in fact. Mm. And so, you know, his notion of the four possible futures, you know, communism, socialism, uh, exterminism, and why am I forgetting the fourth one? Rentism. Rentism. Yeah. Right, rentism. Of course. And my point is, well, we have all those. All yeah. Right. When we I first encountered this idea, right. Michael Brooks uh -huh. um, told me, you know, to check this guy yeah. out years ago and and I thought, well, why are we choosing between different different national forms of capitalism? Well, it why are these? It wasn't. He was talking about it as like the world is heading in these directions. It wasn't like this or that country. It was rather the world. No, but there would also be like the difference between uh, Singapore and Finland was another way. To yeah, there were things that were raised, but it was also like. I think that it, the ambition was higher. Let's put it that way. The reason that okay, I thought okay. this was a worthy object is because I thought, well, you know, the millennials used to have a higher ambition and they were thinking like really thinking like this level of thinking, whatever we might have criticisms of it, it's still miles away and above and beyond anything that the DSA is thinking now mm. or Jacobin is thinking now. They really are not thinking this way anymore. Right there, this was an honest effort, and it reminded me of like Daniel Bell, you know. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a Marxist, Marxist kind of post-Marxist approach, right? It's not mm -hmm. like Orthodox Marxism, but it's informed by Marxism. And you know, Daniel Bell was enough of a Marxist to say, "Well, what's the contradiction now?" Right, and he called it the economizing logic and the sociology, sociologizing logic, right, of capital that those are in contradiction with each other, that capital is socializing, but it's also economizing, and those are in conflict with each other. And it is basically a reinterpretation of an older form of Marxism, but rendered up to date in terms of like the 60s and the early 70s, like what are the manifest contradictions, right? It looks like there are new social movements that are demanding socialization, and they're coming up against the limits imposed by economization. Right. And of course, that did play out in terms of neoliberalism. It did. And then we get this kind of funny, like austerity plus identity politics. We get the new social movements giving us identity politics and new forms of inclusion and new forms of like diversity and equity, new forms of egalitarianism and recognition. But we also get the economizing logic of austerity. Right. Do do, I would say due to a crisis of profitability, a crisis of accumulation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. 
And so, you know, and so again, I'm kind of reminded of that. And I'm thinking, you know, Daniel Bell, like, it's not like I'm going to uphold Daniel Bell. But, you know, it's an honest effort in comparison to what you see on the left nowadays. No, it's what these every all of these guys are kind of worth reading and thinking through and remembering, yeah. um, especially if you think about Fukuyama and, and, and even comparison yeah. to, to Bell. Um, that's right. how I, I kind of link those together. But oh, the, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. That Fukuyama um, kind of, you know, I mean, he does, Fukuyama does come around to contradiction. He does. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's, well, it's just further away from Marxism, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, this is what we're but, talking about. So, okay, I want to, let's real quickly, and then we should go to the parrot room. But, but um, and, you know, I think this is a good episode, but, you know, if there's any problems with this on my side, but the, the, uh, here, here's what I want to ask you about. It's like, yes, you, you both Moish Pistone and Peter uh, Fraze's antimonies of postmodernism and fundamentalism and of scarcity and egalitarianism are expressions of pessimism. I'm reading from you yes. here. Mm-hmm. They form the contemporary face of diminished hopes, but capitalism will not tarry over them. It will move on, it is already moving on. So now the, the, the postmodernism and fundamentalism you sort of map onto, mm-hmm. uh, it, basically egalitarianism scarcity postmodernism being uh, the the post-human uh sociology of abundance in major cities and fundamentalism arising as a way to protect the human in realms of scarcity yes right of mm-hmm. course these cities have you you mentioned scarcity in slums and of course those slums are in those cities so yeah. they're already yeah. uh it's not really a matter of like rural versus urban uh, right, right, right. But or first world, third world, right? No, it's not that either. But, right. but, um, but the 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 question I I have is, um, how is this move from postmodernism and fundamentalism of a, a regression you know, to like scarcity and egalitarianism, a regression in your mind? And then, how is postmodernism and fundamentalism? A, contra- a contradiction that Marxists could take up, that we could, uh, and uh, so you, it, yeah. Anyway, that's no. I mean, the transhumanism. You know, that's another term that people use, right? And it, it's not really about gender. It's not trans that way. It's transhumanism, in the sense of, you know, uh, transcending the older form of humanity, right? That again, one would associate that with science and technology also just new forms of interaction. Like, obviously there was a moment where people thought that like, I don't know, the internet cybernetics could allow for a revolutionizing of our social relations. Right. Um, it's, as it turns out, not so much. Right. And in fact, it's, it's also been a, a way of imposing a kind of an austerity. Um, you know, it's not a new realm of abundance really. Um, and of course it's rentism. Right. So to use the, the phrase category. Um, so or Fraz, I don't know how to pronounce his name. You might know, but um, I just anglicize it. And so, um, you know, because I don't know the guy, Michael Brooks knew the guy. So um, it's, not, I think it was I was getting it through Boshkar. So like Boshkar might be right then, too. Yeah. But anyway, but yeah. And, and, anyway, I was getting I wasn't. I, I, anyway, the, the, I don't know. Peter, how to pronounce his Peter name F.R.A.S.E. Yeah. Um. And so, you know, but again, it points in a one-sided way, right? 
in the same way that, I mean, let's not forget that the fundamentalist movements are anti-capitalist. First and foremost, that's where they come from. Of course. Right? And so, again, a kind of a romantic kind of rejection of capitalism and a kind of attempt to restore the human against capitalism. Mm, isn't that what socialism is? Mm-hmm. Right. So both of these, we could say, you know, postmodernism, transhumanism, and fundamentalism are also the disintegrated remains of the old socialist movement. They are, because socialism was kind of both and neither. It was both a kind of romantic, kind of Luddite, kind of humanistic, very bourgeois in that sense. Um, but it was also the kind of techno-futurist, utopian, right? Um, but it was also neither of those things, right? Um, and it was trying to be true to the fact that this society points beyond itself in contradictory ways. And that those contradictions are not only found in labor, like, in other words, it's not that labor points beyond bourgeois private property, but also technology points beyond capitalism. I mean, kind of obviously. Um, and, but again, in the more like concrete forms of the existing mediation of capital. So we shouldn't, you know, just sort of condemn the finance sector or Wall Street or what, what have you. Um, you know, these are all real things um, and not just real things in terms of like real negative effects, right? Um, but they're also in some obscure way indications of the possibility of a world beyond, right? And again, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a real fan of MMT, modern monetary theory, but again, I would see it as a symptomatic expression of how the society points beyond itself in however distorted ways. You know, and that it's dystopian and utopian. Like all these potentialities are expressed through things that could either be utopian or dystopian. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, it, let, I want to posit this to you. And you know, I've been obsessed by the the um, the new apparatuses of censorship Mm-hmm. Uh, and the war in Ukraine. And so I have this vision of this moment where, you know, the Trump, you, you describe Trump as indicating like a, an actual agent. He's like a real agent of change in the last, uh, you know, not ne- not necessarily an, an agent for socialism, but of yeah. real capitalist development and change where, and what I see now is that uh, the Trumpist nationalist uh, turn um, and the Trumpist uh, aim to restore America's power in the world, um, and the Trumpist a- aim to uh, get a good deal and outcompete the uh, other parts of the world, including Europe and some of our allies. All of these um, is being realized Bye-bye. through uh, by Biden, and but but it's being realized in this typical way where neoliberalism isn't ending, but it is transforming into this nationalist project for American empire uh, with new mechanisms of uh, social control and a break from many of the, uh, it's becoming more authoritarian in precisely the way that we were supposedly afraid that Trump would, would, would be, 
would bring. Well, so um, this is the thing. It's very tricky, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I would say. Okay, so like so, Biden is a realization of the of the of the Trump. It is a real post neoliberalism. Post neoliberalism is inevitable. But so post neoliberalism means it's con- continuation. So there was a while in which people denied the post neoliberal character of Trump by saying, well, he's like a hyper neoliberal. He's like a total Reaganite. You know, he's getting rid of all regulations. He's lowering taxes. It's a total neoliberal agenda. So my point about Trump, by the way, let me just say this. It's not that I thought that Trump himself is going to bring about a new form of capitalism. Of course not. What he represented was a very modicum amount of political change. What does political change mean? It means a new bipartisan consensus. And of course, that new bipartisan consensus would not be like a complete overthrow or negation of the old bipartisan consensus, but it's modification under new conditions. And there is an impasse in in politics. There is. At a global level, there is an impasse. And the existing political parties, the way they divide the electorate, where they appeal to the electorate, the way they divide it, they kind of have a gentleman's agreement to divide the electorate in certain ways and not mess that up too much, to compete in a limited way. And there's a general impasse. There are policies that are also, you know, they're getting as much out of these old policies as they can, but there's real impasse. And all that Trump was saying is there's an impasse and he looked at it at the level that everyone looks at it. It's gridlock. It's partisan gridlock, right? It's like literally Obama versus John Boehner Mm -hmm. or Obama versus Paul Ryan, right? It's literally that. He was repeating Perot on that level, right? Absolutely. Exactly. And so Trump wanted to strike the grand bargain between the two parties. He wanted to literally negotiate the terms of the new bipartisan consensus on the basis of the existing parties. He did. And of course he wanted to drive that bargain. He said, he said, I could have run as a Democrat, but I didn't see the way open to me as much as running as a Republican. So I have to run as a Republican, which means I have to take up the Republican side of the negotiation. And actually negotiate it as opposed to the standoff, right? And he and he attributes the standoff to incompetence. He says they don't know how to negotiate. They're incompetent. So he's like sitting there in Trump Tower and he's like, why aren't they negotiating a deal? I could have negotiated that deal. Why aren't they? Oh, they must be inept. And so I'll do that, right? That's his only ambition. I just watched a speech of his last night, mm-hmm. Doug, yesterday afternoon. He said, overturning Roe versus Wade is a great opportunity to come to a new consensus on abortion. He said, you, his audience, Republicans, I have given you a bargaining position that you didn't have before. Don't waste it on trying to just ban abortion. (laughs) Right. I mean, this is who he is. And it's seriously like. And how did the audience respond to that? There was muttering. Like it, they were not, they were like confused. There was another right. moment where he said, you know, well, I ended like automatically giving trans people medical care in the military because I don't think the military should be about that. And everyone clapped. And he said, of course, we have to provide help to trans people. And then they were like muttering, right? 
He's like, of course, we care about trans people and we want to help them, too. It's just, you know, maybe the military is not the place to do that. And the audience is totally confused. Right. And so. Right. So the fact that he's a loudmouth gets in the way of the fact that he wants to be like the most popular president ever. (laughs) You know, like he (laughs) he wants to appeal to everybody. You know, I mean, it's it's funny. It's bizarre. But anyway, all that that tells us is that it's a very very fucked up political system that we have that is afraid of any change. It's what I said back in 2016. And why not Trump? It seems like these people can't imagine any change that doesn't just fuck everything up completely. And that's just, that's just remarkable, right? That's what we're dealing with. And obviously that's a long-term thing. You know, it's about like, the hollowing out of the political parties and you know that they really aim at a kind of a kind of a cheap consensus among their constituents that's more cultural you know like there's this there's a there's an actual dysfunction there's a real dysfunction well it, you know? i'm reminded of gita board i'm like always reminded of gita board but he 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 had a, this line about how um the spectacle was this perfectly uh, you know, perfect system, um, but also perfectly dangerous. Mm. Like they have this dangerous equilibrium a- a- achieved where on the one hand, um, it, there's always a risk of complete violent upheaval, but on the other hand, nothing new can emerge. Uh-huh. No, well, so, that's true too. So it's a kind of a, it's a kind of a, a dangerous illusion in that it can walk off a cliff without realizing it. Right. Right. Yeah. But then it's walking off a cliff. It's not like really allowing for the possibility of a beneficial change. Right. Right. No, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, people get upset about minimizing Trump's evilness. uh, He's just not evil. I mean, we just need to stop. We just need to stop. I've been through it all. I've gone through it all. You know, I'm married to a Muslim. I know, I know, I know, I know. And he's an immigrant, my partner. And I just know. And I've written about this too. You know, it's in my book. If people care, they can say, look, I oppose all of Trump's policies. Why do I I, try? I would just say, if we don't think that Biden is evil, if we don't think Biden is evil, then we shouldn't think Trump is evil. If we do think Biden is evil, then we feel free to think Trump is evil. Yeah, of course. But, but, uh, you know, if you didn't think that Obama was evil, you shouldn't have thought that uh, Bush was evil. And right. and so on and, and so on because they're yeah. what they are is that the class of people uh, that you know are are dealing with uh, like if you didn't yeah. think Oppenheimer was evil, right? Then you know <laughs> then you shouldn't think that Trump is. Uh, and Oppenheimer was much more well equipped, at least in intellect, than Trump is apparently to, to do something better. So like you know like yeah, I I don't think Trump is evil either. I don't particularly admire him. Or, no, I mean he or, is. Or, what bothers me about Trump the most is the way in mm-hmm. which the Democrats are creating conditions where the only way to oppose them is by by signing up with Trump. That creating these conditions where yeah. if you are anyone in society where and you feel like the, that you're screwed, then the, the person who can actually stand up and say, "I'm for you." And looks like I mean, he really means place, it. Is this there's guy. a place for partisanship? In other words. Like, there's a benefit to the parties competing, 
Right. Meaning, you know, maybe we can be the collateral benefit beneficiaries instead of the collateral damage of the parties competing. I mean, for the most part, we're collateral damage, but we can also be collateral beneficiaries. I'm grateful for this Louisiana judge, you know, a Trump appointed judge, uh, putting an injunction against the Biden administration. I'm absolutely grateful for the Republicans that weaponization on government hearings. I, yeah. I, you know, exactly. Um, it's, it's motivated by pure partisanship. Oh yeah. So <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So what? Right. So they're interested yeah. parties. And so, I mean, I, again, my point, my point always about Trump was don't freak out. Don't lose your mind. Mm-hmm. Use it as an opportunity to see how things work because the seams are showing. It's not that the system is really cracking up, although they seem to be pushing it to the breaking point. But the seams are showing, and you can see the mechanisms. The mechanisms are laid bare. And it's all, it goes back to, I mean, look, do we like the WikiLeaks of the DNC? We do, because you see how the Democratic Party works. Yeah. We'd like to see how the Republican Party works too. Like, bring it on, right? Russia, Leak the emails, right? Like Trump said, mm-hmm. and which was supposedly an impeachable offense or high treason. They said when he said that, that's treason. He should be executed on the spot. They did say that. That was before he's elected when he said, Russia, please give us Hillary's emails. I, I tuned into CNN and they were like, that's treason. Arrest him. That's a death penalty offense. No, we like the WikiLeaks, right? So, you know, and you know, so but you know, it's you know what though, it wasn't treason. No, they didn't arrest of him. Not. <laughs> right? You know, isn't. right? And Julian Assange is also not like uh, whatever should be. He should not be. No, I mean, what's happened to Julian Assange is a true. It truly should frighten everybody. Yeah, and media anyway. Every reporter. So I'll say this you know, one last thing, since this is the public thing, you know, because we yeah, had the the discussion this week on the Sublation Show, and I was, you know doing all sorts of things I shouldn't do, like defend Trump and invoking Alan Dershowitz. Oh, you know, no, the point is if they can do this to Trump, they can do it to anybody. Right. And that's what, and what people on the left need to understand. People who call themselves Marxist socialists need to understand. And of course they do do it to everybody already. Oh, of course they do. Yeah. They do it to everybody. It's not like he's the first unjustly prosecuted person. It's just, we don't see it. Right. Yeah. Obviously, (laughs) but no, obviously he's not the first, he's not the only, but, um, when, when people on the left laugh at Trump's tweets where he's saying, I'm doing this for, I'm being indicted and arrested for you. For you. He, he may not even mean to say it, but it's true. (laughs) Right. Right. Like that for most people, even if they're all kind of centrist liberals, I think resonates and and certainly for everyone in the country who thinks these indictments are politically motivated, which by the way, includes quite a few Democrats who are for them. Yeah. If you just scratch the surface, they're like, people will say things like, well, if you would agree not to run for president, maybe he can get rid of the indictments. It's like, fuck that gives it all away. Doesn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah. It's like if people are like fantasizing that he'll, he'll plea bargain and promise not to run. Well, I mean, at that point, that's what is this, right? I mean, obviously, it's politically motivated indictment. He's not afraid to go to prison. I mean, this is the other stupidity. So I think last time we talked about this. Well, which well just let me get to the end of this slot, which is just that people who don't understand how Trump actually his message is now resonating as if mm. it is authentic mm. due to the politically motivated indictments and a, and 
you mm -hmm. know, and can't mm -hmm. see this is happening in the context of the Durham report. Right. You know, uh, it can't put that one plus one equals two equation together. No. Um, are missing it, and they're and as leftists, they are completely, uh, you know, abdicating their responsibility to try to pr present an alternative for people who are the disenfranchised and the dispossessed and the working class and so on. They, if if we say yeah. ha ha about this, you know, it's gonna it's right rings hollow. I, I yeah. think. Uh, I mean, it's it's a funny thing. So it's like you know, because that was the other complaint was that I was making a legalistic argument. It's like, well, no, you know, there are like principles that are worth upholding. And there's also going to be legal minutiae and things are going to be appealed and thrown out on appeal and this kind of thing. I mean, it, you know, we should take it again as an opportunity to see how things work, how the, how rotten they are and what happens all the time. Like, in other words, this is in the spotlight. And so it allows us to see what prosecutors normally do, which is unjust and is unconstitutional, but no one cares. But because it's a partisan conflict, someone is motivated to care, right? In other words, like all sorts of things that prosecutors do all the time that are actually unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. This Now there's a major capitalist political party that has a vested interest in opposing it. Whereas if it's just your common criminal, they don't care. Right. That's right. right. And it's like, come on, you know, this, there are stakes here and it's not about Trump or no. his political fortunes or, you know, or the future yeah. of capitalism. Right. I mean, Just like the Twitter files weren't about Elon Musk. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Obviously not. Right. Right. And we're also not about this or that. In other words, it's not just like COVID or Ukraine or whatever. It's everything. In other words, it's on anything. They're going to do this on right. anything. Right. So you might completely agree with the Ukraine policy. You might completely agree with the COVID policy. But do you want a government acting this way? Right. That's exactly right. And I want in the second half, I want to go over dialectics again and how to uh, be, be dialectical in our approach to creating a, a socialist mm -hmm. uh, movement. Because mm -hmm. I, I think I understand dialectics, but when I try to, I, I, I don't know, I, I had a philosophy degree. I'm constantly looking for essences. It just, it's just it, it built into me somehow. So I want to, I want to talk to you about that again in the, in the parrot room. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it there for now and uh, come on, join us on the other side. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>